Hello and welcome to Psych with Miss O. I'm Miss Osborne here going through each and every topic on the specification list for AQA A-level psychology. Last time we started looking at approaches, so we began with origins of psychology before moving on to the learning approaches, so both behaviourism and social learning theory. Today we're going to think about the cognitive approach and then the biological approach. The cognitive approach builds on this previous idea from behaviourism that we can only study observable external behaviour. So the behaviourist model thought of the mind as a black box that can't be studied. But the cognitive model is looking at the mediational processes, the mental events that occur in between input and output and says that we can scientifically study internal behaviour. The AQA specification says for the cognitive approach that it's comprised of the study of internal mental processes, the role of schema, the use of theoretical and computer models to explain and make inferences about mental processes and the emergence of cognitive neuroscience. Now that's a mouthful, but we're going to go through each and every part of that in today's episode. So how do we break down the cognitive approach into four assumptions? Because remember, we're always trying to get across our four main ideas. What do they convey about the approach? The first assumption of the cognitive approach is that the mind actively processes information from our senses. For example, taste, sound. The next assumption is that between stimulus and response are complex mental processes, which can be studied scientifically. The next is that humans can be seen as data processing systems. And the last one is that the workings of a computer and the human mind are alike. The cognitive approach says that human minds encode and store information like computers and that they have outputs. All right, so the first bit of key terminology to take from the specification list is what do we mean by internal mental processes? This can be defined as operations or processes that occur in the mind, but unlike behaviourism that says we cannot study this scientifically, the cognitive approach is making moves to say, yes, we can study scientifically what happens in the mind even if we can't study it directly. And this is where we move on to our next key term, inferences. Now, this is what is used, employed, to study what may be going on in someone's head. We study internal mental processes indirectly by making inferences. Now, these are conclusions reached on the basis of evidence and reasoning. We talk in class about them being educated guesses, guesses based on evidence and reasoning, not just plucking something out of thin air. An example of an inference might be if we saw someone running away, screaming, shouting wasp, and then we saw a wasp flying behind them, we're going to assume that the input, the sensory input, was them seeing or hearing a wasp, that the mediational process was one of fear, one of a fear response, and then the output, the outward behaviour, is them running away, screaming, shouting wasp. The next key term is schema, which in class we describe as being like a filing cabinet, a way that you organise and store information. 
We have millions of schemas in our mind and what they do is they allow us to make shortcuts. We talk about later in memory how schemas may affect the reliability and the validity of eyewitness testimony because if we're making these shortcuts, sometimes that builds into negative stereotypes or just stereotypes in general where our schemas fill in gaps. Where they're useful, though, is so we are not constantly having to process information as though it's brand new. We allow experiences that we've had previously, things that we've seen in the media, to make those shortcuts for us. Theoretical and computer models talk about our mind working like a computer, there being a linear path for input processing and then output. The input comes from our senses, so this is sensory information from the world around us. The mediational process that happens within the internal process of our thoughts. And then the output, such as language or a specific behaviour. And then lastly, we have cognitive neuroscience. This is the scientific study of the influence of brain structures on mental processes. So its main focus is to look for a biological basis to thought processes. And it combines several other disciplines of psychology like neuroscience, cognitive science, cognitive psychology, all coming together to cultivate this new way of thinking. Now, as early as the 1860s, we had psychologists like Paul Broca identifying how damage to a particular area of the brain could permanently impair speech production, for example. Later in the 1970s, we have Miller and Gazziniger talking about cognitive neuroscience for the first time. They want to bridge the gap between the biological, the cognitive science aspect and neuroscience thinking about how we can apply the wealth of knowledge we have about the physical body and think about how to link that to thought processes. The example of a cognitive neuroscience study that we talk about comes from Maguire in 2000. Now, the aim of the study was to investigate the function of the hippocampus, specifically in spatial memory. The participants for this study were 16 healthy, right-handed male, licensed London taxi drivers. Now, the taxi drivers were compared in terms of brain scans, MRI scans, to 50 healthy, also right-handed, also male participants that did not drive taxis. The findings from Maguire's work were that the hippocampi of the taxi drivers were significantly larger compared to those of the control subjects. What this indicates is that the hippocampus may have something to do with spatial memory because as taxi drivers at the time in 2000, you were expected to undergo a two-year course essentially called the knowledge and this was memorising the entire map of London, ways to get to important landmarks, every street, every address on every street and thinking about how that impacts the size, the shape of the hippocampus, which Maguire had thought had a link to spatial memory. The second finding in terms of hippocampal volume was that the largest hippocampi in the taxi drivers belonged to those who had been taxi drivers for the longest. And again, we think about how flexible the brain is. Maybe the more and more time that you are a taxi driver and the more used to those routes you get, the larger your hippocampus grows as your spatial memory increases.
This demonstrates that by using a biological way of studying the brain and internal mental processes, we are seeing a biological basis to thought processes. In this case, a biological basis in an MRI scan to the thought processes of spatial memory, of remembering how to get somewhere. This is cognitive neuroscience in use, demonstrating a biological basis to thought processes. Next up, we have the biological approach. Now, the four assumptions of the biological approach are as follows. The first is that there is a direct correlation between brain activity and cognition. So we've seen this foundationally laid down in cognitive neuroscience, and the biological approach looks to extend that idea. The second is that biochemical imbalances can affect behaviour and we think about this in psychopathology when trying to explain conditions like depression, like OCD from a biological perspective. The next assumption is that brain physiology can affect behaviour. So again, how flexible, how plastic the brain is, but also damage to particular areas and how that affects behaviour. And the last assumption is that behaviour can be inherited as it is determined by genetic information. This is when we're going to look at inheriting or heritable mental health conditions. So the first area of interest for the biological approach is evolution and the genetic basis of behaviour. Now we know about evolution because of Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection, how we evolve over time where only adaptive, positive, helpful characteristics remain in future offspring and anything that makes us more susceptible to injury or to death dies out, anything that isn't useful or helpful. What this means in terms of genetic basis of behaviour is that DNA containing that genetic information about mental health conditions, about brain physiology is passed down in chromosomes and therefore Darwin's very first theory of evolution and natural selection points us in the right direction in terms of how are mental health conditions heritable. Next, we have the nature-nurture debate to consider, an age-old question asking, is it the environment or is it something that you were born with? This links to the biological approach by talking about genotype and phenotype, where we talk about the genetic makeup of someone versus the combined effects of genetic makeup and physical environmental presentation of that genetic makeup. Nature-nurture debate is a key argument in psychology, talking about mental health conditions, about attachment behaviour, about any kind of human behaviour that you can think of. Was it as a result of someone's genetic makeup or because of the environment that they found themselves in? So again, those definitions for genotype and phenotype. Genotype is the actual genetic makeup or genetic code of a person. And then the phenotype is the way that those genes express themselves through physical, behavioural or psychological characteristics. What this means is that your genotype might be to have blonde hair, but your phenotype, the way that your genes express themselves through physical characteristics within the environment, is that you have blonde hair, but you dye it brown. It doesn't mean you have brown hair, but that is how your genes are expressed in the environment. Again, you can think about exercise. If you had a pair of twins who genetically are almost exactly the same, one twin does no exercise, one twin does lots and lots, they're physically going to look different, and that is the phenotype, that is how their genes express themselves through those different environments. 
When we talk about the effects of brain physiology and neurochemistry, we're drawing on your biopsychology year one information. So it's important to have that biological basis of understanding when thinking about this approach. What that means is that there are interactions, there is almost constant communication between different regions of your brain and your body to help control different functions. For example, electrical impulses or action potentials enable an important means of internal communication and these travel around your body using the nervous system. Impulses are transmitted between neurons, at synapses and at junctions where neurotransmitters are released. Again, we talk about inhibition or excitation of neurons here. Neurochemical imbalances in the brain are often associated with mental health conditions. So when we do psychopathology and we talk about depression, we'll often talk about low serotonin or with schizophrenia. If you do that as an option three, then we talk about high dopamine, for example. Another way of understanding biological behaviour with mental health conditions is using the endocrine system. So not a neurotransmitter imbalance, but a hormone imbalance, because that is what the endocrine system is all to do with. Released by glands into the bloodstream, so for example cortisol, adrenaline, which we know are very important in the fight or flight response. The last thing to talk about with the biological approach are the vast amount of different research methods employed by this approach to understand behaviour. So we start with animal studies, used previously with learning approaches, making that assumption that animals and humans learn in the same way, and the biological approach think the same. Many species, for example, rats, are thought to have a similar biological makeup to humans, and so therefore they will study rats and then draw those conclusions, generalise those conclusions to humans. However, this methodology still raises ethical debates, this argument between the use of human versus non-human animals. The next is case studies, and this is, for example, Phineas Gage that we learn about, who, after a railroad construction accident, drastically changed his brain physiology. His frontal lobe was really badly damaged. Now, because we can't ethically, as psychologists, damage participants' frontal lobes to see if we can generalise this behaviour, we have to use case studies, sometimes one or very few people as an example, and then generalise their results to the wider masses. Next up, we have drug therapy, a very interesting part of the biological approach because we understand biochemistry as a way of exhibiting different behavioural characteristics. When we talk about biochemistry and we talk about drug therapy, we're talking about re-establishing balance in people's equilibrium, either of their neurotransmitters or their hormones. The next research method used is brain scans, so looking at physiology and activity across the brain. And this can be gauged by using MRI scans, PET scans, CAT scans. What these do is these help researchers to identify the functions of specific regions. And we talk about this in biopsychology. We refer to it as localization or function. The last research method used by the biological approach that we talk about are twin studies and family studies. Now, we've mentioned that psychologists believe that mental health conditions are heritable. And what this means is we're looking at genetic links and genetic similarity as an understanding for the likelihood of a characteristic. 
So with twins, it's particularly interesting, especially if they both have the same genetic makeup. So that's monozygotic or MZ twins. They have near identical genetic information to the other. Or dizygotic twins, where they're non-identical, they share about 50% of their genes. Looking at twins in particular is very interesting because if one has a predisposition for a mental health condition you want to compare that to someone with very very similar or more similar than sibling um, genetic information. So that's our run through today of both the cognitive approach and the biological approach, thinking about how our understanding of psychology developed from origins to learning approaches, then beginning to think about, no, the mind isn't a black box that can't be studied. We're going to delve a little bit deeper and make inferences about what people are thinking using the cognitive approach and then seeing the birth of cognitive neuroscience, the emergence of these fantastic technologies where we're able to actually study the brain and how that leads into the biological approach. Next time, we're going to think about the psychodynamic approach, so all about Freud, and then the humanistic approach, how person, client-centred therapy has been really, really important. Thanks for listening.